Hello, and welcome to the Dairy Defined podcast. This week marks the one-year anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, a war that's costing hundreds of thousands of lives and unfathomable damage to one of the world's leading agricultural producers. Kay's Housinga has seen it firsthand. With more than 2,000 cows on a modern dairy near Cherkase, Ukraine, about 120 miles south of the capital city of Kyiv, Housinga has continued farming in wartime, facing challenges few of us have had to think about and none of us would want to. In part because of his efforts to help fellow farmers in conflict, last year he received the Global Farmer Network's Kleckner Award for his contributions, and along with his experiences in Ukraine, Hausinka, who is originally from the Netherlands, is also a leader in agricultural innovation in Europe. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. This has been a year that no Ukrainian farmer asked for. Take us back to one year ago. What was your experience as the invasion began and how as a farmer did you respond? You know, the experience and first, uh, the first reaction was panic, of course, you know, what's gonna happen? How fast are they gonna go? What are they gonna shoot? You're thinking that the rockets might drop everywhere. Um, yeah, so panic was uh, an anxiety, you know, uh, that were the first reactions. Uh, I mean, we maybe subconsciously thought that might happen, but uh, you don't want to think about it. You know, uh, you don't want to imagine that things like, like that are going to happen. And then uh, on the 24th of February in the morning, we had to tell our kids that the war began. There was, was war in their country, you know, in our country. I mean, and that's, uh, that's a hard thing to do. How many children do you have and how old are they? Two daughters, 11 and 13 years old. So uh, they, uh, we, uh, my wife and the kids, they left. I mean, during the day, we were thinking what to do, leave or stay, you know. And as I said, you don't know where the bombs fall. You don't know how fast they're going to move there. And uh, so in the end of the day, we decided to leave on a navigation app for airplanes. I've, they, they're the ammunition depots of the army are marked, you're not allowed to fly over it. So on on this map, we we planned the route, you know, to, to stay as far away from those uh, depots as possible, because that's the things the Russians were uh, shooting at. And um, so they took all kinds of little roads, uh, and dirt roads and, and cobblestone roads to the Romanian border. And uh, a drive, it's normally takes you five, six hours, took them like 14 hours. Um, you know, and of course, very afraid, and and, and they were already dri driving in the dark because we decided we decided they sh uh, towards the end of the day that they should leave. Um, you know, and then finally they crossed the border in, into Romania, and it was uh, it was a huge relief. But then later on, you know, as the Ukrainian army was stopping was stopping the invaders, and um, you you uh, you get some more statistical. Uh, knowledge about rockets you know and about war so uh, later we found out statistically that it's that the chances are not so high that you're being hit but uh, i mean still the chances are higher than in northern america or in the rest of europe so, but uh, now i'm now we can we drive in and out with the kids and with the family so uh, we're kind of used to it already so are they in Ukraine now? No, in the Netherlands. They okay. go to school. They go. They they go to school in the Netherlands now. Uh, 
because the schools in Ukraine, a lot of them are still closed because they don't have a bomb shelter. Uh, and still, again, statistically, chances are very small, but the, most of the school directors, they don't want to carry the responsibility, you know, that uh, even if uh, one chance in a million that their school is hit, that there's uh, hundreds of kids in that school, you know. So, uh, they, yeah, they, there's a lot of them. A lot of schools do online lessons, but, you know, that's not... Uh, that's not that's not really working. How have you adjusted as a farmer? Uh, yeah, mainly the crop, um, the, the the crop, the arable farming. We adjusted. We we grew less corn for for uh, for grain because it's such a bulky crop to export, um, and we planted more spring uh, spring wheat, uh, spring barley because it's less volume, easier to export, and it spreads the workload a bit more. We planted some additional soybeans. Uh, because they're more expensive and so therefore easier to export by truck and by uh, by railroad because uh, from the first day on the ports through the black sea were closed so uh, you know we couldn't export like 80 percent of what ukraine produces is being exported through the black sea and uh, of uh, is being exported and 90 percent of this goes through the black sea so the railroad and truck routes they are really not uh, uh, you, you can't replace that export with it, so uh, that's why uh, why we went to crops which are a little bit more expensive and lower in volume. But the dairy, we didn't do a lot of changes. We we bought a lot of uh, of, of of protein up front. You know, we might we feared the shortage. Some medicines we bought up front and some other uh, inputs, which we feared the shortage of. Um, you know, I went to the people, you know, to the older employees to talk to them and uh, tell them not to panic and that we, we will all stay and uh, know that we have to keep on running the farm and keep on feeding and milking the cows because, you know, they don't care if it's uh, rockets or not. They have to be milked uh, three times a day. You know, and that's what we did and everybody stayed. Some guys went to the army, of course, um, but we were able to replace them with others. The creamery, the processing factory, they uh, they never skipped one day in picking up the milk. They never skipped a day in uh, paying. Uh, we gave them some milk for free, and they processed it for free. And they gave this uh, these products to refugees and to the army. So you know, and, and a lot of people, a lot of farmers did similar things. So uh, yeah, that's kind of the first days of of the first weeks and months of the war. And I understand your herd side is actually growing. No. In the, so we were at the moment of uh, when the war started, we were constructing a, a barn. I mean, we were busy working on the foundations and we already bought a lot of metal for the for the steel frame. Uh, so but we stopped all this. Uh, you know, yeah, as I said, because we didn't know what was going to happen. But then uh, when the Ukrainian army pushed back the Russians, uh, you know, we, we, we got a little bit more confidence and and the herd is growing. I mean, it's a natural process. You, uh, every dairy farmer knows, you know how it works. So, um, and you can't stop that. Um, so, and but we couldn't sell the heifers. Uh, slaughter slaughter cows are very low in price. So, uh, you know, you try to keep them as long as possible. Yeah. So, out of a need, we had to uh, we had to uh, continue construction, and and a lot of construction material material we already had uh, paid so um now we had only to weld it together and uh, in, in in build it 
Um, you know, now that barn, the first barn is of the, that's actually our third barn is nearly finished, and we can put uh, heifers and cows in there from the overcrowded other pens. Going into year two, what are some of your ongoing challenges, and what challenges could you see emerging ahead? I mean, it's the uncertainty. You know, you never know what's going to happen uh, tomorrow. If that rocket might hit your farm, you know, we are still far away from the from the front line, but I know farmers who've been hit, you know, and who've been tortured and, and killed as well. So uh, I, I don't know what the biggest uncertainties are. If if the fertilizer, if, if there will be enough fertilizer available to grow a good crop, uh, seeds, they are more or less available. Um, um, prices because of this export uh, complexities, you know, the, the Black Sea is, is not in full capacity of exporting because uh, Russians are slowing down the inspections in Istanbul, which were agreed on, and they just don't send people there. So the, the inspection capacity is very low. So export doesn't go that fast. So prices for, for grain are really low in Ukraine. I mean, they used to be like half of half of what they were in um, in Europe, for example. Now they've, Europe has come down a bit, so but it's still like a hundred dollars difference, which is uh, which is way too much. Yeah, and that's still the big, biggest part of our um, operation, you know. So if that if if those prices are not going to go up and fertilizer prices are, are not going to go down, I mean, but that's not a lot we can influence, you know. So, uh, but therefore, it's good to have the dairy. As I said, they, they pay it every day, they pick up the milk every day. Um, and the dairy plant has 30% of their turnover from export. So, you know, that's kind of an exchange rate stability uh, for us as well, and, and for them, of course. So, you know, probably more cows, more more feed for cows, you know, actually adding value to the, to the crops we grow uh, and make milk and butter out of them. I would be interested in knowing how you got into Ukraine in the first place. Netherlands is a major agricultural exporter. Why would you choose to build an operation in Ukraine? Uh, we've been there now for more than 20 years, and uh, it still is a great country. You know, and back then, I think, I mean, they were just 10 years out of communism. They didn't know the market. They they didn't have uh, they didn't have uh, modern agriculture. They didn't have money to invest into modern agriculture. So I think half of the country of the fields were not tilled you know they were overgrown with weeds and um, people have and, and the land belongs to the people from the villages and they they hadn't received um lease payments for the land for for years so um you know and then you have this huge field of a few hundred acres each uh and and more or less uh, level and for low uh, low lease prices so it was, yeah, potential was enormous. It was the best soil of the world and good climate. So, uh, you know, that was not so difficult. And it was, Ukraine was was rising slowly. Yeah, it was kind of a no-brainer. You know, of course, the culture is different and the, the, you, have, you have to get used to it and not all the services are available, especially in the beginning. So uh, you have to improvise a bit. But, yeah, it's a lot more fun. Than, uh, than farming in the Netherlands, you know, where land is expensive and uh, where you have so many people. So you have to have a lot of rules uh, because everybody's like a fighting for space. You know, it, was, it was a nice opportunity. And, and I mean, within 20 years, we grew to uh, 15,000 hectares, 
that's what is it like 40,000 acres and 2,000 cows and 300 hectares of vegetables with drip irrigation. I mean, we, we've never, we, we could have never achieved that in, uh, in the Netherlands. And how many people do you have working on the farm? A little bit over 300. And you mentioned some of your workforce went and joined the army and, and they have families and, and they have children who are going to the Ukrainian schools. How does the community hold together in a circumstance like this? Oh, it's very difficult. I mean, they hold together because they're very angry. They all know that, uh, that they don't want to live under Russian occupation, you know, and uh, I think everybody knows. I mean, they are, the Russians are very good at propaganda, but living in Russia is just like living in a police state. Uh, we had refugees on the farm. We had many refugees on the farm, especially in the beginning of the war. Uh, and one of them, one of them they origin, originally were from Kazakhstan and they came to Ukraine 10 years ago. And um, they said to me that Ukraine, Ukrainians are a free people. He said, here I can swear and shout at the president and call him any name I want. In Kazakhstan, I would have ended up in jail for three years. You know, and he said, so Ukraine, you, and I mean, he felt free. He could do and he, can do, he could do what he wants. And he said, Russia is a police state. Kazakhstan is a police state. Belarus is a police state. Uh, and and, and ev everybody in Ukraine feels this, everybody in Ukraine knows this, they all have family there to whom they can't talk anymore because they're so influenced by the propaganda. Uh, I mean, when Crimea was taken, a lot of Ukrainians fled Crimea and every every now and then they, they went back before the second war started, you know, and they noticed the difference in their former uh, neighbors. You know, they couldn't talk, they, the neighbors didn't talk to each other anymore because they were afraid they would be, um, Spider-Bun or like the KGB or what is it, FSB now was listening in on them, you know, and the neighbors might uh, blame the neighbors of something, you know, and then they might get caught. Uh, you know, what did, was it the, the usual uh, normal Soviet Union uh, way of living, you know, where everybody was afraid of everybody and there were your neighbors could, uh, could give you in or, or your family members or whatever, you know, and that was promoted in the Soviet Union as well. And that's what the Russians uh, continue doing, you know, and Ukrainians have never really accepted this. I would think from 20 years of living, working and investing, you would gain an appreciation for that history and that culture. Absolutely. You know, and I know the history because, of course, we live there and that's why we're above average interested in it. And but we read a lot about it. They they deserve to to be free, you know, and, and, and live in liberty, you know, and they deserve the support from the whole world to win this war. And uh, you know, we should give it is support from free countries how do you see this how do you see it affecting the situation from your vantage point yeah no, we, we we have uh we have a foundation with a with a group of dutch uh entrepreneurs from ukraine all of them have been there for for more than 20 years and it's uh, the name is the leo kiev the lion kiev in dutch it is and um you know we brought we collected already like close to two million dollars in money and, and close to $8 million on uh, humanitarian aid in all kinds of sorts, food, cars, uh, bikes, uh, warm clothes, uh, a lot of generators lately, uh, you know, and with this we help uh, Ukrainian people and Ukrainian army. Uh, and there's a lot of these in, in, uh, relatively small-scale initiatives, you know, which go into every corner of Ukraine. So that's that, that support is from all over Europe. 
If someone was interested in knowing more about um, the foundation of which you're a part, how would they get more information? They could go to the web to the website. It's in Dutch and in English. Deleukiev.nl. So it's D D E L E E U W K Y I V dot NL. Okay. Let's move into the future. The war is over. Ukraine's a free country and it's able to build a nation. What potential would you see there? Still huge. I mean, the same potential we saw 20 years ago, it's still there. Of course, competition for the land uh, is, uh, has increased. I mean, back then, 50% wasn't tilled, you know, and now farmers are competing for the land, which is good in a way, you know. Um, but there's also huge possibilities for adding value, you know, like a dairy, uh, dairy farm. I mean, we have a 2,000 head uh, dairy farm at the moment, and our plans were to grow to 5,000 or 10,000, whatever. Uh, works out you know i mean we plan to do it gradually you know but other farmers could do the same or other investors could do the same you know and, and bring the dairy knowledge uh, i mean copy paste the uh, canadian american system but, uh, the, from the climate it fits um, into ukraine as well there's water there's feed you know there's soybeans there's sunflower uh, cakes there is corn every i mean everything's there and, and there were a few quite good dairy farms Vegetables, fruits, that's, uh, that's an option. You know, there's enough workforce and they're relatively cheap. And all kinds of other value-added uh, things, uh, you know, entrepreneurs can think of with their creativity and uh, it's a place for all of them in Ukraine. But a lot of rebuilding going on, literally demining in some parts of the country. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, they're already working on it, but, you know, it's going to take a long time. But Ukrainians are also smart, you know, they are also thinking of their own uh, ways to demine with drones and, with, I don't know, with different kind of cameras on it to, to spot the drones or, or to spot the mines, for example. Um, so I think that can go relatively fast, although uh, it's not it's not easy. But I mean, that's not all over the country, you know, that's where the front lines were. Um, and that's not the biggest part of the country. So uh, the other parts are, are still safe to go. You talk about the importance of international support for Ukraine. Do you worry and do you hear Ukrainians worry that this support may not be sustained? No, not really. I think all the countries supporting Ukraine, they are now so involved, you know, they can't really afford to let Ukraine alone and they can't really afford to, to lose, you know. So I think the support will stay. The only thing is it should come faster. And, and that's what worries me. That there simply won't be enough in time. Uh, uh, there, yeah. There, I mean, there, at the end, there will be enough. But uh, uh, it will still cost a lot of lives before we are there. You know, if they would do it faster, we could, we could handle uh, the Russians faster, chase them out faster. And it will be uh, over uh, sooner. You know, saving a lot of lives and money. You know, as I said, Ukrainians are a free people and they deserve they deserve the support. You know, they're fighting for their freedom. I mean, if we let uh, Putin win this war, you know, or get away with it somehow, then I don't know what to expect in the future from dictators, you know, in the world. There's, there's quite a few of them. And it uh, will be an example for the others to do similar actions, you know, and, and 
they will especially Russia, especially Putin, they are manipulating the world with 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 violence and with hunger. I mean, that's a really important thing, and with with energy uh, uh, supplies. So you know, if we give in to this, then for the next few decades, I'm I will be really worried. You know what's going to happen. We've been speaking with Case Hausiga, a dairy farmer in Ukraine and a supporter of its development. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. And for more of the Dairy Defined podcast, you can find and subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Amazon Music under the name Dairy Defined. Thank you so much for joining us.